It's been a great week. We've had Spring Hill here all week long. About 80 children uh, from early in the day, all day, and wonderful young people that were leading that and our volunteers. Thank you for those who volunteered. Thank you for those who housed some of those students leading Spring Hill. It's just a wonderful week and had some good reports of kids giving their lives to Christ and and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful week. So thank you. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross to the other side. And when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He arose and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and they said to one another, Who can this man be, or who is this man, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Lord, we have come today to exalt the one who is the way maker, the peace speaker, the chain breaker. We've come to exalt Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is our purpose in gathering, is to lift up your name and to proclaim your name. I ask God in these moments that remain that you would supernaturally arrest and captivate the attention of everyone in this room. I pray, Lord, for your anointing, not because I have proven myself to have earned it or deserve it, because neither is true. But I pray for your anointing because I need it to rightly divide your word. I ask God that you would anoint me to speak your word with integrity, with authority and simplicity and clarity at the same time. And I ask, Lord, that um, you would, Holy Spirit, wield your word, your sword, the word of God over our hearts. May I not stand over this text, but may that text in your hand stand over us. And may it change and transform us in these moments, I pray. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Scott Cernow, in his um, book, Please Don't Squeeze the Christian, um, wrote about the danger of cynicism, especially in the life of the believer who claims they have a living hope. He writes this, cynicism kills in the manner of frostbite. The only symptom is a deadening numbness. And even Christians are tinged often with this frostbite. Callousness and doubt numb us to life and joy. We find, find ourselves leaving the triumphant lyrics of the old hymns on the churches or on the church doorstep. Because they appear hopelessly out of step with the world waiting outside. He says, our problem is not that we've been taught to question our faith, but rather that we've been taught to reject any answers. Uh, 
Doubt can be a state of mind or it can be a way of life. The whole concept of cynicism is one that has certainly been prominent and become prominent in our culture today. The culture that has even now rejected the value of human life. It's about three years old now, but there was a 2016 article in Forbes magazine entitled American Cynicism in Nobody We Trust. And in this article, the American Press Institute released a survey showing that only 6% of Americans have a great deal of confidence in the news media. That was three years ago. I'm not sure that that percentage is even that high anymore. It also said that there had been a steady decline over the last 40 years in the trust of the American people with their government. As a matter of fact, a Gallup survey that showed that fully 8 in 10 Americans believe they only trust the government some of the time to never. Worse yet, 20 years ago, the percentage of Americans who had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in religious institutions and the church was in the high 50s. That number is now in the low 40s. There is a culture of cynicism that has become prominent in our country and certainly around the world. The late Polish satirist, Slavomir Morozak wrote a satire, a story, a short story. It was simply called The Elephant. And in this satire, he spoke of a 1957 period of time, a small Polish town in a communist-ruled area. There was a zoo in this village, and there was an upstart politician who was kind of the overseer or the director of that particular zoo. The zoo was a nice zoo, but one of the things this zoo lacked was an elephant, and it desperately needed an elephant, and it had for a long time. At long last, there was a wealthy donor that allocated the funds that this director, also upstart politician, would be able to take those funds and purchase an elephant for the zoo and all of the children and all of the families would love that this zoo finally had its elephant. But this particular leader, the director of the zoo, also a, a, an aspiring politician, wanted to make some points with the president of his board and the board of directors and show himself to be a good steward and able to save money, thinking that that would get him some points and he would ultimately get their vote to be able to um, continue or maybe even spiral uh, his political career. And so he made a, a unilateral decision that instead of a real elephant, he would buy a blow-up elephant. And um, he would simply blow that elephant up and kind of rope it off and the kids could go by and look at it but they wouldn't touch, they would never know the difference, and he would save money, and he would look really good then to those that were his overseers. 
And so the morning came, they purchased that blow-up elephant, and, and actually the night before, two zoo hands came, and they were instructed to blow the elephant up and place it. But it didn't blow up easily, and so they attached a, a gas hose to it instead. And they filled the elephant with, with gas, and they, they staked it down, not especially well, but they staked it down. And then knowing that, that the kids might be a little curious, they placed a little sign by the elephant simply saying that this elephant was particularly sluggish and hardly moved. And so they thought the kids wouldn't ask too many questions. The problem was the morning came and the kids filtered in, excited to see the new elephant exhibit. But there was a gust of wind that came. And it had not been staked down all that well. And so the stakes began to loosen. And ultimately, that elephant lifted. It looked like something in the Macy's parade. And it, and it lifted and it flew off the property of the zoo and finally was found in a botanical garden. And it had been punctured by a cactus that it had landed on. Now, the point to this satire is the concept of cynicism, because the story goes on to say that the kids, so put off by the lie, began to be cynical about everything and ultimately themselves became hooligans and dropped out of school altogether. The story's point was that one's cynicism breeds an either worse and even worse cynicism in the next generation. A cynicism that thought it could deny the truth of accountability ultimately bred a cynicism that threw off restraint altogether. Religious and church cynicism has unfortunately bred in our culture a deeper cynicism among many young people that are now turned off by religious institution and all, all, oftentimes the church as well. This is the truth, the point I want to make. The fake elephant does not eliminate the fact that there are real elephants. And the point is that the failure of the church to reveal the true Christ of the gospel does not mean that there is a true Christ that is to be revealed. The failure of the church to proclaim the true gospel does not mean that there is not a true gospel to be proclaimed. That is the point of our text today. Much has happened that has bred a cynicism about the claims of Christ and the truth of God's word. But the truth about him is revealed in this narrative and actually spans all of chapter 5 that we will look at in just a few moments today. And they force us to be confronted with the reality and to take our own stand and to answer the question about what we believe when we are asked the question the disciples ask, who is this man? Who is this one that the, that the waves... And the wind obey. As we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 35 miracles that are listed in those four Gospels. That does not include the sections that say that he went about healing all their sickness and disease. 35 specific miracles. 
Of those 35 miracles, nine of those miracles are miracles where he stands against nature and causes the winds and the waves to be still or causes the bread to multiply. Nine miracles where Jesus confronts the elements of nature. Six of those 35 miracles are miracles where he confronts a demonic spirit and and exercises a demon from someone who is bound in the shackles or the chains. Six of those miracles, 17 of those miracles, are where Jesus heals sickness or illness or disease. And three of those miracles are where he shows his power and his authority over death itself. What's really interesting is these verses in Mark chapter 4 and then Mark chapter 5 reveal four miracles, and it's kind of a sampling of all four kinds. We will see four miracles where Jesus exerts his authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, and over death. And we will then answer the question, who is this man? Who is the man that we are going to proclaim? What is the gospel that we are going to share? Number one, he is the son of God with authority over every storm. How many are thankful Jesus has authority over every storm? Say amen if you're thankful for that. The account of the storm is narrated with such specifics that seems to bear the marks of almost an eyewitness account. Most people believe that Mark, the writer Mark, is telling the story of Peter. And and so he shares what looks to be almost an eyewitness account. From a small boat that Jesus had been teaching all day long on, he invites his disciples to take a trip to the other side. And so they cross the Sea of Galilee, a sea that is shaped like a basin with mountain ranges that often become the scene for great squalls and storms. These storms are even more dangerous at night. So the disciples are headed across the sea. Jesus has fallen asleep on the boat and the storm strikes. While it strikes, Jesus is nowhere to be found. He is is peacefully asleep, asleep on the boats. Even these experienced fishermen were terrified. It was clearly a severe storm. They knew the lake well. They knew every nook and cranny. And yet they awakened Jesus and said, Are you going to sleep while we are perishing? Jesus awakened and he rebuked the storm. He simply said, Peace be still. And it stopped. There was a great calm. And then he rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. And the Bible says that after he rebuked them and possibly turned away just a bit, the disciples were frightened and they said, Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? I'm going to share with you very quickly five lessons from the storm. I'm just going to give them to you quickly. Number one, sudden storms often interrupt And they forever change our ordinary life and way of living. Is that not the truth? We don't expect the storm to come. It just comes quickly. It just comes seemingly out of the blue. And all of a sudden that nice little peaceful life we had is interrupted. And things may never quite be the same. It might be a sickness. It might be a disease. It may be a diagnosis. It might be a, a prodigal. It might be a lost child. The loss of a spouse, a tragedy, 
a crisis, but sudden storms often interrupt, and they forever change our ordinary life and way of living. Secondly, these storms often come where there seems to be no way out. It's one thing to be on a, in a storm and be on the shore. To be on the land, to be on the dry land and be able to take cover. But these disciples were in the middle of the lake. There was nowhere to go. And oftentimes our storms come to us when there seems to be no one that we can reach out to and no way to find any help. Thirdly, fear comes when we forget the past work of God and his word. Isn't it like that the storm comes and all of a sudden we're paralyzed by the storm in front of us and we forget what God has just done? The disciples had just seen Jesus heal the man with a withered hand. They had seen the paralytic get up off of his bed who had been let down in the middle of the house. They had seen him walk, but now all of a sudden they forget what Jesus has done and they forget his word. So often when we are met with a trial, we become paralyzed. And we forget what Christ has done and fair rules. Number four, look at this. It is audacious and foolish to think that any boat that Jesus is on is going to sink. How many are thankful for that? It's not going to go anywhere. But yet the disciples awaken him. Master, hurry up, get up, because we're perishing. They somehow thought that this boat could actually sink with Jesus on it. And sometimes... We kind of flip out. The trial comes and and yet though we have the Holy Spirit living in us and the presence of Christ walking with us, we begin to somehow think this is it. This is the end. This boat is going to sink. But how foolish and audacious to think that a boat upon which Jesus is on could possibly sink. And number five, the word of God can stop the storm or it can calm the hearts in the midst of the storm. In this case, Jesus delivered them from the storm. But sometimes he delivers us through the storm. You see, the cynical heart now is is forced to respond to the rhetorical question of the disciples. Who is this man? What is the answer we are going to give? He just told the winds and the waves to stop. And they did. Who is this man? He was the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of history. And he was the Lord of nature, and he silenced the winds and the waves. When he chooses to reveal himself, all forces of nature must submit. It was the same God that told Moses to stretch his rod out, and suddenly against every every known scientific way, the waters rolled back, and Israel was able to cross under dry ground. Jesus spoke to the sea like he did the demon with the same Greek word and said, be muzzled, be still. A force that was threatening his disciples, he spoke to and immediately it stopped. You see, the calming of the storm, listen to me, was more than a miracle. It was an unveiling of who Jesus was. It was an unveiling of the Lord of the universe. The human predicament today is great. We live in a fallen world that's beset by powers of chaos. Powers that threaten and wish to destroy us. Oftentimes our faith is weak and we often don't know what we are to do or whom we are to trust. Cynics say there is no help, there is no truth, there is no answer. God seems indifferent. 
But this miracle reminds us that the Son of God is with us in our storm. And he has power over every storm. Say amen if you're thankful for that this morning. The cynic says, where is God in my storm? G.K. Chesterton once wrote, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. But in heaven's name, to what? When things get rough and, and you, you, you cynically want to say, is God even in this? The tendency is just to pull away. But Chesterton says, to whom? Reminds me of that day that Jesus is teaching a large crowd and his, his sayings get a little bit difficult. And the Bible says the crowd begins to filter away. And finally, they're all gone except the 12. And Jesus looks at the 12 and said, you're going to leave too? And Peter, like Chesterton, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Listen, we live in a cynical world. A world that says there's no hope, there's no answer. But we know the revelation of Scripture says that Jesus is the Son of God. With authority over every storm. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly, he is the son of God with authority over every demon. Let me read the text quickly from Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea. To the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat immediately there met him out of the tombs. A man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him. Not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone take him. Tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs. Crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshipped him and he cried with a loud voice. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, we are legion. My name is legion for we are many. He begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. And a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send this to the swine that we can enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 of them. And the herd ran violently down the steep into the sea. And they drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled. They told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus, and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed, watch this, who had the legion sitting now, and he's clothed in his right mind. His hair is combed, he's cleaned up, he's got clothes on, he's not bound by any chains. And they see him, the people of the city, and they were afraid. Those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got in the boat, the demon-possessed man begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus didn't permit him. He said, go tell your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. How he's had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And they all marveled. A couple of things I want to mention very quickly. This narrative, first of all, graphically depicts the goal of demonic activity. 
And that is, it seeks to distort the imago Dei, the image of God that is on us. It was about a two-hour journey across the lake to the Gadarenes. The storm came in evening time, so when they arrived, it was still dark out. This demon-possessed man who had made his home among the tombs came running out. He was out of control. No one could tame him. They had chained him and tried, but he would just cut himself out and then cut himself. And this scene would have been even scarier after dark. He runs to Jesus and falls at his feet. He's shrieking and shrieking and screaming in a defensive mode. What have I to do with you? He said, why are you interfering with what I am doing here? He calls Jesus by his name, not to exalt his dignity, but in that culture, There was a sense that if you could call someone by name, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, you would exercise the upper hand. And so the the demonic spirits coming out of this man called Jesus by name, trying to get the upper hand. He senses that he is about to be punished. Mark has already noted that Jesus would say, come out of this man. And Jesus then demands the demon's name. And the response was, my name is Legion. We are many. What a pathetic, distorted picture of the image of God that's been stamped on humanity. Now say our name, my name is Legion because I'm many. Demon possessed, racked by this spirit in shackles and in bondage. In this Gentile area, there was a herd of swine roaming. And they said, don't cast us out of the country. Allow us to go into that herd of swine. Jesus granted permission. They went into the herd of swine, about 2,000 of them. They ran over the cliff and they perished. We, we cannot help but wonder why Jesus allowed this to occur. And I'm not sure that my answers are necessarily the right answers, but let me suggest a couple of thoughts here. First of all, Jesus recognized that the time for the ultimate vanquishment of the demonic had not yet come. His encounter with the demoniac and his triumph over him would not put an end to satanic activity forever. It was not the end. It wasn't the final encounter. Folks, we live in a fallen world. Healing does not eliminate sickness forever. This miracle foreshadowed a day Still yet to come when the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Jesus knew that that day had not yet come. But secondly, I would suggest to you that Jesus allowed them to enter into the swine and go over the cliff and perish so that everyone there would be allowed to see that the ultimate goal of demonic activity is to destroy their host. That's what everybody watched as the demons entered the swine. What was their goal? To destroy that in which they lived. And it was a telling reminder to everyone in that place that day that the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Interestingly, those who saw the miracle begged that Jesus would leave them. 
What a pathetic request. But they may have been afraid to have someone with such power in their midst. But they wanted Jesus just to get out of there. They were more comfortable with the man before than they were now when he was in his right mind. The man who had been delivered wanted to stay with Jesus. But Jesus told him to stay and tell his friends about his deliverance. So what does this narrative tell us about the cynic and the son of God? Number one, let me suggest to you that balance needs to always be found. There are those who think that the activity of demons is just a bunch of nonsense, silly, it's ridiculous. There are others that are looking for a demon behind every bad behavior and behind every bush. Balance must always be struck. Secondly, may I point out that the demoniac wanted to be free. Even though so tormented and so controlled, he wanted to be free of the demons that kept him in shackles and in bondage. Jesus simply spoke and the demons left him. Something in his voice like that day that he calmed the storm. But notice this, and this is really where I want to land for a moment or two. The townspeople put their own security and their own comfort ahead of the needs of the broken and bound man. Instead of finding help, instead of calling for Jesus, they just tried to chain him up. They tried to just keep him out of the way. They tried to just push him aside. They didn't want to mess with their comforts and their easy way of life. Can I just say to Glad Tidings Church, Let us never become a church that values our comfort and our ease so much that we will push aside those who are broken and those who are bound and those who are in shackles. But instead, let's welcome them and let's find them the help they need through Jesus Christ and his power to break demonic activity. Say amen if you believe that. The cynic says there are some situations that are hopeless. The townspeople thought this was one of them. They just tried to chain him up and hide him. Mark Buchanan tells the story of having dinner with Jim Simbala, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle. Many of you know the story of the Brooklyn Tabernacle and maybe have read Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Every Tuesday night, hundreds of people gather into the Brooklyn Tabernacle for a prayer meeting. Pastor Buchanan had been at that prayer meeting on this particular Tuesday night. And after the prayer meeting, he went out to dinner with the Cymbalas. And Jim Cymbalas said to Pastor Buchanan, Mark, do you know what the greatest sin of the American church is? He went on to say it is not, the greatest sin is not the pornography that entangles so many young men and women. It's not the fact that the divorce rate among Christians is as high as it is among those who are not believers. But Jim Cimbala said the number one sin of the church in America is that its pastors and its leaders are not on their knees crying out to God, bring us the drug addicted, bring us the prostitutes and the destitute, bring us those who are bound by disease and addiction, bring us those with AIDS, bring us the people nobody else wants whom only you can heal. And let us love them in your name until they are whole. 
Mark Buchanan said, I had no response. I was undone. He laid me bare. He found me out and exposed my fraudulence. I was the chief of sinners. I had never prayed, not once, for God to bring such people to my church. So I went home and I repented and I stopped sinning. And I began to cry out for those nobody wants. I pray that we will be a church that believes enough in the power of the Son of God that we will pray God sends us those people so that we can proclaim a son of God who has authority over every demon and every power of Satan. How many believe that to be true? Number three, he's the son of God with authority over every disease and sickness. Let me read this very quickly to you. We move on in chapter five. There was a certain woman with a flow of blood. Notice this for 12 years. She had suffered many things from many physicians She'd spent all that she had and she wasn't any better. She just got worse. She heard about Jesus. So she came behind him in the crowd and her mindset was, if I could only touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And so she did that and immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she could tell in her body that she had been healed of that blood issue and that affliction. Jesus immediately knew that somebody had touched him and he turned around and he said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples thought he was crazy. There's this huge crowd here. Everybody's bumping up against everybody. And you're asking us, who touched you? Jesus looked around to see who had done this thing. But the woman who was fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened, came and fell down before him. And she told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your affliction. See, the woman pushed through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Twelve years she had been afflicted. She had spent everything that she had and she was no better. She had actually gotten worse. This woman was in a constant state of uncleanness. Because of the bleeding issue, no one would touch her. Because if they did touch her, they would be unclean. She was not only sick then, but she was lonely. She was an outcast. Nobody could be her friend. Nobody could touch her or they would be marked unclean. So she pushed through the crowd. Maybe aware that others had touched Jesus and been healed. She was desperate enough to show up in the crowd that day. And the moment she touched Jesus, he knew that something, some virtue, some power had left him. And he said, who touched me? The disciples thought he was nuts. William Lane says this, it was the grasp of her faith rather than her hand that secured the healing that she sought. Her touch had brought together two elements, faith and Jesus. And that's what made it effective. And Jesus sent her away in peace, in shalom, in wholeness, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. The cynic says today that faith is foolish, that miracles don't occur. But the Son of God says, come to me by faith. In Mark 11, 24, Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. If you are hurting, if you're spent, if you're lonely, if you're sick, come by faith and lay hold of his healing. The cynic says the days of miracles are over, but the Son of God has authority over every sickness and every disease. 
And finally, and I'll be done, he is the son of God with authority over death. Let's pick up the story again. We go to Mark 5, verse 21, when Jesus crossed over again by the boat to the other side. This is right after he healed the demoniac. There was a great multitude that followed him. It was by the sea, and one of the rulers of the synagogue, his name was Jairus, fell at his feet and begged him and said, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. How many have daughters here this morning? We have daughters. And wouldn't you do absolutely anything you could to get your daughter well? This man did that. And so Jairus comes and he finds Jesus. Now, what we don't see here on the screen, we read it when we're looking at, at the text. But now Jesus, he heads to help Jairus, but he gets interrupted by the woman with the issue of blood. And the whole time, you know, Jairus is thinking, listen, my daughter is sick. Can we get on to see her? And Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood. And now we pick the story back up. And while he is still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, hey, Jairus, your daughter's dead. No need to bother the teacher any longer. When Jesus heard that spoken, he looked at Jairus and he said, don't be afraid, only believe. And he didn't allow anyone to follow him except Peter, James, and John. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and he saw tumults, those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, why are you making all this commotion? The child's not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. They ridiculed him. So he put them all outside. He took the father and the mother of the child and those that were with him. And they entered where the child was lying. He took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked for she was, notice this, 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. And he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. And then they said that something should be given to her to eat. From the eastern shore where he had been told to leave to the western shore, this multitude follows him. The ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, had an urgent plea. His daughter was sick. He believed if Jesus would come, she would be well. He consented to go, but along the way, he's interrupted by the touch of this woman with the issue of blood, and he heals her. But now as he readies himself to leave, He heard news of the girl's death. No need to bother Jesus, they said. But Jesus said to Jairus, I'm still going. You don't need to be afraid. Just believe. Jairus had seen the woman healed, but now he's asked to believe that his dead daughter could be raised. When they arrive, only the father and the mother and Peter, James, and John are allowed to enter in. There are professional mourners there that are that are mourning and crying. And Jesus said, I don't know why you have all this commotion. She's only asleep. And they laughed at him and they ridiculed him. He took the little girl by her hand and said, little girl, arise. And she rose. The cynics here are the professional mourners. Death is in their minds just the end of the cycle. All death evokes is sadness and hopelessness and mourning. It was laughable for Jesus to tell them not to cry. There can be no good news in such a moment. But 
Jesus turned their mourning into dancing. The power of Jesus is related to the kingdom that had not yet been fully manifest. And it is where we are today. Death has no hold over the child of God. Even though it touches us right now, it has no hold and it has no sting. This miracle points us to the day when that power will be fully manifest. His resurrection does the same for us. It gives us hope. It causes us not to grieve like those who have no hope. He is the Son of God with authority over death. Let me conclude with three final notes and then I'll be done. Pastor Clayton, if you want to come. I want you to really lock in here on these three final statements. Number one, the narratives of the raising of the synagogue leader and the healing of the woman with the issue of blood wrap around one another. They're, in, they're intertwined. And they underscore a truth that God is no respecter of persons. How many are thankful that God is no respecter of persons? I want you to consider these two miracles. The little girl was born the same time the woman's issue with blood started. She'd had it for 12 years. The little girl was 12 years old. Jairus is a man with prestige, economical, social, religious. And she is a nameless woman. And her sickness renders her religiously unclean. She's walking pollution. She's unfit to even enter the synagogue, let alone the temple. She has to slink about in the community. But he is a man of means. He has servants. She has spent her last penny and is still sick. But they both have heard about Jesus. They both desperately need healing. And they both have run out of options. The Son of God is no respecter of persons. Number two, these four narratives also force us, listen closely, to face the reality of the present moment. Not every storm is stilled. Not every demon is cast out. Not every illness is healed. And in this fallen world, sometimes you have to hear the words, your little girl is dead. How does a loving God allow evil to continue to exist? Or why, why does the inexplicable occur? Folks, listen. Look right here. A miracle does not occur in every situation. It just doesn't. I wish I could tell you it did, but it doesn't. If God intervened in every situation, we would never need to exercise our faith. The woman was healed, but she would face new ailments. The little girl was granted reprieve. From death for a season. Faith holds on in the face of death. Knowing that God has conquered death. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally number three. Actually let me say this too. God's seeming inactivity. That's where the cynic lives. Oh God's not doing anything. And that cynicism can grip even the child of God. Numbing us. Like frostbite. We quit expecting. We quit believing. We quit hoping. All four narratives. Number three. 
reveal the truth of the gospel. Here's the message we preach. Yes, there are fake gospels, false gospels, poorly preached gospels. But here's the gospel. Here's the good news we preach. Jesus will make all things work out. No storm, no demon, no sickness, not even death can stop the plan of God that we will experience one day. How many believe that to be true? Who is this man? He's the son of God that will make all things right one day. Father, I thank you that um, all of creation is groaning and travailing and waiting for the adoption to win the redemption of the body. Difficulties, trials, storms, sickness, addiction, tragedy, easily cause even those who are people of faith to begin to allow the frostbite of cynicism and callousness to creep in. To numb us to the point that we no longer believe or expect or hope. Lord, just because there has been a pseudo-Christ that has too often been proclaimed does not eliminate the truth that Christ, who is the Son of God, has all authority both in heaven and in earth. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever has committed whether in this life the already or the next the not yet to make all things new a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess a day will come when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and even if we have suffered with we will one day reign with Him. I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room today, those who may be, because of the pain and because of the trial and because of the storm, because of the tragedy, have allowed themselves maybe to become a little callous or a little numb, afraid to believe, afraid to hope, afraid to expect. I pray that Your Word spirit would cut through that divide asunder the thoughts and the intentions the soul and the spirit help us to believe and hope and expect again I pray with the assurance that one day one day all things will be made new with your heads bowed for just a moment I wonder if there might be someone here today who's never surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You've never, you've never said, I know that I'm a sinner. My heart is not right with God. My goodness could never pay God for my sin.
but I know that Jesus did. And today, you want to say, I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord.